You're listening to Leveling Up, where we'll show you how to win at the game of life and business. It's time to power up your skills through life gamification with your host, Eric Sue. All right, everyone. Today we've got Romin Sheth, who I've been following on Twitter for a for a while. And he writes some really good tweet threads, which we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But first and foremost, he's the president of Metasys Technologies, which is a bootstrapped workforce management advisory firm. That's a mouthful. I'm going to let him explain what that means in a second. In Atlanta, that does over 50 million plus a year. He also invests a few million bucks a year into startups like Republic and also has a podcast called Square One. Romin, how are you? Thanks, Eric. Good. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. So yeah, why don't you tell us a little bit about, about kind of what your story is first, and then we'll kind of, we'll take the conversation from there. Yeah, sure. So I've spent the last 10 years kind of building businesses in the, what I like to call is like kind of like information knowledge or information management space. So basically the easiest way to think about it is on kind of one, one side, let's say on the left-hand side, people that want access to information or access to something. And then on the right-hand side, people that can provide that information. And so that's kind of manifests itself in marketplace businesses like expert networks, right? Where you service hedge funds, consulting firms, et cetera, that need information. And then we would find you know different types of experts that could basically supply that information. It's manifested in like pure enterprise SaaS startups. One of our startups we partnered with, Harvard Law digitized all their case law library and then built, used machine learning and NLP to build different types of tools on top. So basically, how can you surface interesting information in a more accessible and digestible way? And then my latest business that I'm running right now that you mentioned, Metasys, where we help companies kind of solve every and, it, every and any issue related to their non-full-time workforce. So the gig economy and concepts like that have become a lot more familiarized and popularized over the last decade or so. And so we help really large enterprises when they spend, you know, 100, 200, 500 million dollars a year on this type of non-full-time talent. Basically think through that. So that can be finding the talent, it can be managing the talent, it can be strategy and advice and counsel, you know, throughout setting up programs to actually you know, source and manage that talent. So basically anything and everything that has to do, you know, with that type of uh, a population base. And then you mentioned, I, I invest a ton. I have a, I have a podcast as well. And so, so yeah, I like to, I mean, I like to, I like to interface with like super smart founders that hopefully, you know, I can teach them something, but most of the time they teach me something. It's a, it's a selfish way to get a lot of R and D, you know, for my business and to get smarter as well. But uh, so yeah, those are a couple of things that I do. Yeah, podcasting is a nice hack to just have conversations with interesting people, and then it, like you find it often carries over into real life because you've had that conversation even for thirty minutes or an hour. So yeah. good deal. Yeah. So Metasys. So from what I've read, it's you took the company over, correct? That's right. Yep. Mm-hmm. Got it. So what's the story there? Yeah. So I, I did a lot of work, as I mentioned, kind of in, in building these different types of businesses and saw, you know, I, I saw a pretty big need for this kind of gig economy space five, six years ago, but not the way that we talk about it in Silicon Valley and in tech, right? The way that you talk about it in Silicon Valley and tech is you think of, you know, the Ubers, the DoorDashes, et cetera, as the world. And that's certainly a portion of the population, but a large part that's not talked about as much is what happens in the enterprise and in the Fortune 500 space. And what often happens in those spaces is they're using a significant amount of what's called contract labor or contingent labor, right? They're using a significant amount of contract and contingent labor to actually do some pretty strategic things for their businesses. And so I spent a little bit of time at McKinsey also doing consulting. And when I was at McKinsey, I did a lot of M&A work. And what was interesting was when we were doing these kind of large-scale M&A initiatives, 
a lot of the ways that the companies would integrate is they would actually use very, very large contractor bases. And there were ways for companies to get smart and get information that they didn't natively have in their own employee base. And it was also a way for them to scale up and scale down with demand, right? And so a lot of these businesses that we were merging were, you know, they were highly seasonal businesses, right? Uh, they were payments businesses, et cetera, that didn't have as much predictability around transaction flow. And what was interesting to me from an insight perspective was seeing that a lot of these mergers were happening through contract labor. And you would think differently. You would think this is the most strategic thing that's happening to the company. Of course, they would keep this in-house and they weren't, right? And so that was a really interesting kind of observation. And I saw that kind of consistently across companies, across sectors, et cetera. And so, you know, as I was, as I was leaving McKinsey, I was looking kind of for my next thing to do. And I had found this business, you know, here in Atlanta that was set up in a, in a really interesting way that had a lot of opportunities to scale, but that next level of kind of skill set on how can that business scale was missing from the equation, right? So, so I took over the business and basically we've done kind of what you mentioned at the outset, right? We've, we've you know, tripled the business over the last couple of years. We've scaled it significantly and, and the business is growing you know, quite fast. And it's an exciting time in the industry, right? I mean, there's, there's a lot of this kind of knowledge base that's happening in the enterprise space on you know, how to use these types of workers. So it's been a ton of fun. So for you personally right now, like you mentioned investing, I guess, how do, what does the workflow look like for you? Like, how do you tie into business in with your investing activity? So for me personally, yeah. like the way I look at my, the, the, the marketing agency that we have, I'm like, how can we use it as like a, almost like an investment vehicle where it's like, I'm basically like a super angel at the end of the day. So I don't know how you look at it. Yeah. Yeah. I think all these things are complementary, right? Like the way I like to think about these things is it's really hard to, you know, one way you can kind of frame the story and, and I'm not unique by any stretch in this in this kind of space. But one way you can frame the story is like, you're running a business and you're doing a podcast and you're investing and in kind of how do you find all the time, right? I think that's a gracious way to frame it. The way I frame it is more so like, what are the different pieces that interlock with one another, right? And so I look, I look at a lot of businesses in this space, right? And I'm investing in this space. And it makes a ton of sense because I know about the space, we can add strategic value, you know, there's there's often opportunities to collaborate, partner, et cetera. And down the line, you know, that can turn into that can turn into an investment, right? The way I think about, you know, the podcast and, and such as well is is pretty similar, right? Which is chatting with interesting people and and seeing how they're thinking about, you know, either their portfolios, either their investors or their founders and how they're thinking about their businesses. You know, and and a lot of that for me is uh, is breaking out of my own business, you know, forcibly, you know, at least, you know, once or twice a week and getting alternative perspectives. And many of those ideas, you know, that I've discussed on my podcast with guests, et cetera, can translate actually pretty organically, you know, into our business. And some of them can't, but they they open up the aperture at least for, you know, are we thinking about things the right way? And so I, I look at kind of all of these activities as, as overlapped activities and how can they kind of compound upon one another as opposed to being, you know, distinct or separate activities. Yeah, I think so. Exactly what I'm hearing is is everything's inter interlocked and interconnected, and then the the whole ship, the, the whole rising tide analogy, right? Yep. You know, all the boats yep. go up. So interesting. Right. So you know, I want to talk about the podcast, but I first want to go to Twitter too because I, you know, when I looked at your Twitter, I mean, there are some threads that you put up that have like ten thousand likes on them, some even higher than that, where you're getting pretty good reach. I think you have one twenty or one hundred thirty thousand followers or so. So what does Twitter mean to you, and what is your Twitter strategy? Being that this is a marketing podcast. 
Sure. So two questions. So what does Twitter mean to me? I mean, I, it's funny because I actually, I had like a thousand followers a year ago. So this is actually very recent for me, which I think probably says a couple of things. So one is there's a lot of learnings that are really recent. The second thing is kind of growing audience fast is very plausible, right? Like that's, that's exactly what kind of I've done in the last year or so. I think Twitter is amazing, right? It's like the town square of the internet. And for the longest time I was kind of, you know, lurking or kind of passively participating reading, observing what other people wrote, et cetera. But I saw a pretty material shift once I kind of inserted myself as being a part of the conversation, right? It's led to a whole bunch of interesting relationships. I like to write a lot just generally, right? And and kind of as a reflection piece on how we run the business or lessons learned or whatever that might be. And I think actually sharing those externally is really, really is really positive from a personal perspective because what you what you end up doing which i didn't kind of realize as much so what you end up doing is you're basically passively building your your brand and your perspective online and so what you're doing is you know if you kind of think of a prototypical way to build a relationship it's a very one-to-one way to build a relationship right and this is kind of a one-to-many way and there's a latency factor on it which is you know i might write some of these threads or so and eric you might read you know a couple of these threads and say hey they really resonate with me so let me reach out to Ramin and let's establish a relationship. And so I think what starts to end up happening, one of my friends has this really good phrase, which is, you know, in life, you kind of want to create the honeypot, right? And the honeypot, the idea is basically, if you create the honeypot, you know, the bees come to you as opposed to you kind of going out, right? And so that's kind of how I look at Twitter, which is very much so building an online honeypot. There's going to be people that read those threads and think, you know, that's that's not right, or I have a different perspective, et cetera. And that's totally fine, right? They're not meant for everybody and anybody, but there's a lot of people in my experience, at least so far, a lot more than fewer that look at things like that and say, hey, that actually resonates pretty deeply, right? And I think it's really important to kind of put your thoughts out like that in the world. I've, I've put a thread out, which is like, you know, these are the 10 themes that I'm looking at, you know, putting money behind and investing, right? And it pulls a lot of, you know, interesting founders out of the woodwork that may not have found you, right? And And for no other reason than, you know, kind of this serendipity of the world, right? I mean, these are really strong founders that can raise from whoever they want to raise from. There's a whole bunch of strong kind of operators, founders, et cetera, that want to invest. And for whatever reason, those like matches don't happen, right? Because that's kind of the way the world works. And I think if you're active and such on on a forum and a place like Twitter, then you start basically creating, you start manifesting a little bit of that serendipity, right? And so that's that's kind of the way I've I've thought about it. We can get into some of the learnings too if that's helpful. But at a at a conceptual level, yeah. really kind of Twitter to me has been like, how do you, you know, how do you actually manifest serendipity or or meeting folks as opposed to kind of passively hoping, you know, that people come across your desk? I think that's the key word. I do want to touch upon the learnings in a second, but when I think about, you know, the the podcast the events, you know, us blogging, you know, all the stuff related to kind of content marketing, right? It is basically creating serendipity at the end of the day. It's it's creating those 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 touch points and, you know, bringing at least for me, I'm I'm an extroverted introvert, so I don't like going up to people. Events, I I prefer to just have people come to me. It's just easier that way. It's funny cuz it's a lot harder <laughs> in terms of work, but it's it's also if you look at it as fun, like it makes it easier. So I guess my first question for you would be before we get into Twitter learnings, is you know how much time are you spending because i'm looking at some of your posts out there like i can tell that they're they're very you're very thoughtful with how you're doing like a thread so how long would like a epic thread take you in terms of time commitment yeah i mean it used to take me a lot longer because it was more it was less so about the content and it was more so about the practice of writing right so i think there's two elements that go into this one is you know being a good writer or being a better writer 
And I think that's like, you just have to put the reps in. And then the other part is the underlying content. And I'm a really firm believer, like to make this a sustainable habit for you or to have kind of not just like one thread go viral to like continually get reach and such. You have to, as much as you write in a, in a compelling way, what you're saying has to be super compelling, right? And, and I think the only way what you were saying ends up being compelling is if you do interesting things, right? Like, so, so for me, actually, the, the content part is not as much because I'm not one of these folks on Twitter that's like, hey, let me, you know, let me curate 10 podcasts or 15 frameworks or this, that, and the other. And, there, and there's no knock on that. I mean, that's, that's all fine and well as well. But my approach to this has generally been, what am I actually experiencing in my day-to-day, whether that's lessons from running a company, lessons from you know investing, so on and so forth? And what are the interesting and observations and insights that come to bear? And that should come naturally. That should come from day in and day out, the work that you're putting in, right? Your job is not sitting on Twitter for eight hours, 10 hours a day. Your job is actually doing something in the real world and then you know translating that. And then the writing piece of that is you just get kind of better with time. So it used to be, you know, it'd take me like a full day, right? To write like a good thread. And I wouldn't sit down kind of one day and do it, but take me an hour, two hours, kind of a couple of days and take me like a week to put something together. Now it takes like an hour, hour and a half or so. And it's typically because I maintain kind of a running list of like observations, ideas, et cetera, in bullet point format. And then it really kind of like when something triggers that, when some experience triggers that, that's typically the inspiration to say, okay, you know, I kind of had a latent set of thoughts, right? Sometimes they're related, sometimes they're not related. And now I've had a specific experience that's actually prompted this. Now let me actually go, you know, and write. And I, I think that's the way, like for anybody listening that's saying, hey, I want to get into Twitter or blogging or any kind of content marketing, that I would recommend you really kind of think, think hard about both of those pieces, which is how do you become a good communicator? Uh, but also, how do you become a communicator that's worthy of communicating something? Well, there you go. That's a that's a big one. That that's everyone rewind everyone rewind that one. So so what I'm hearing too is is your Twitter is more or less like a stream of consciousness. Yeah, and and I don't want to like it's not like it's like hey, there's no thought and like I'm a genius and I just like write these things out. Like it's it's definitely like I sit there and and I I digest and I try to think about it. I try to write as best as I can. But so so stream of consciousness would probably be too generous. But but the opposite end of that spectrum is like book report, right? It's like, it can't be a stream of consciousness because I don't think it's thoughtful then. But if you're, if you're kind of setting out to do a book report, you're not really living that experience, right? You're sitting down and you're researching, et cetera. You're not really living that experience. And so neither of those is really genuine, right? Or, or maybe they're both, you know, one is genuine, the stream of consciousness is genuine, but it's, maybe it's not worthy of reading. The other one is probably worthy of reading because it's super detailed, thorough, et cetera, but it's not really genuine. Right. And so I think you kind of have to find that balance, which is, you know, what is my genuine perspective? What is my interesting observation take, et cetera? But what is it in in a way in which it's actually it's actually genuine? Right. Because I think that's the way you actually sustain. That's how you don't just write one thread, two threads, you know, two blogs, three blog posts, et cetera. But how you pump out, you know, 50, 100, 200 over whatever period of time. Right. That, that you do that over. Totally. Yeah. I mean, look, we, we talk a lot about SEO on, on this podcast, but what I, what I've been kind of advocating for is, is for people starting out, Twitter is probably better because of discoverability and because it's an open graph. And just like the, I would just say even the quality of DMS, the, the people that I'm talking to on Twitter is higher than like a quality of DMS on like a LinkedIn or Instagram. Yeah, yeah. Not even close. I think somebody described this well to me, which was like, and I'm going to butcher this, but it was like, 
Facebook is where you go to talk about like who you were, you know, Instagram's where you go to talk about like what you want people to think of you as, and Twitter's really go like Twitter's where you really go to talk about like who you actually are. Right. Yep. And like, it's, it's an intellectual social network, as silly as that sounds compared to the others. Cause there's like not opportunities to like cleanly put, you know, pictures in a discoverable way or this, that, and the other. So it's really like, you're kind of left with your thoughts and there's the yep. good and the bad of that. That's not like, you know, that's not all positive. There's bots and spam and lack of nuance often and, you know, so on and so forth. But if you treat it in the right way, it really is kind of meritocratic, right? Cause you know, there's no barrier to you putting your thoughts out into the world. And then people reacting to that and resonating with it however they want to. Yeah. I just keep remembering that when Sean Peary, he did the the thread on Clubhouse and that got him on the CNBC and like a whole host of other things. And I think he got like 20 or 30,000 followers off of that one. So yeah, yeah I, I just think it's it's fascinating what what one thread can do for you. So any other Twitter well, threads? And what, what I'd say on that is like, and Sean is a good friend. We went to college together, actually. We actually do a lot of investing or investing together. But the thing, the thing that I think is important about that is you're right. Like that one thread, let's say, got Sean onto CNBC. But Sean was always going to get onto CNBC, right? And and the reason why you know he didn't have that one insight about Clubhouse and that didn't just kind of come come to him overnight. That might have been the prompt, you know. But Sean has been thinking interesting things since I've known him in college, right? And so a lot of these things, I think, like using these tools, they're not replacement tools or hacks to kind of get to where you want to go. But I think they're accelerators, you know, or augmenters of what you're already doing. And I think if you think of these things as 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 just that, which is their accelerators, then I think you're thinking about it the right way. They're not replacements, right? You can't just get onto Twitter and come up, you know, and and you know, magically that's what's going to give you the insight. It's really you have to, I think you genuinely have to live an interesting experience, meet interesting people, you know, work really, really hard, and then use those forums to actually accelerate, augment, you know, and communicate, you know, what it is that's that's going on in your brain. Got it. Yeah. I, I mean, you know. I guess let's finish off on Twitter real quick. So any other lessons that you want to, any other Twitter lessons you want to share before we move on? No, I mean, I, I think, I think if you, I think the the summation probably is if you use it the right way, it's like an unbelievable tool. And I, I think the way to use it the right way is like to figure out how you can use it sustainably and and put your, your kind of own imprint on the world. And, and if you do that, then like, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty, it's a pretty awesome tool. I mean, this is kind of a, a related, it's related to Twitter because Twitter requires clarity of thought. So you actually had a note on the world's most valuable skill being clarity of thought. So, I mean, just listening to you talk, I can tell that you're, you're thoughtful with how you choose your words, right? Like, so I'm, there's a lot to, to, to unpack here. So A, what do you mean by clarity of thought and how do you kind of continue to, to hone that? Yeah, I think clarity of thought is like I think that thread that I wrote, if I if I remember correctly, was was basically speaking to like, you know, calling out I don't know like ten or fifteen cognitive distortions I, I've definitely faced, you know, in my you know career and and early career, and I notice all the time in in junior folks, right? And and so we can kind of go into any of those specifically. I think like one like one example was like all or nothing thinking. It's, it's very, I see that very, very commonly where people will think, you know, literally a hundred percent of if it, if it's not a hundred percent, it's zero percent, right? If it's, if it's not black, it's white. And typically, you know, business operates in the gray, but I think the clarity of thought skill is, is really, really important. One of the most difficult things in business in general is prioritizing and judging things for their relative sets of importance. If you treat everything equivalently, if you put the same level of effort into everything, you're just not going to get great output, right? You're just not. 
And, and even when you, if let's say you're, you have really good judgment and you pick the one thing that matters and you pick that thing, but you don't have the ability to then, you know, go to your team and sequence out, you know, to get this done, we're going to do step A and then step B and then step C and then step D, right? Or, you know, person one is going to do this, person two is going to do this, person three is going to do this. And that can apply in any context. That can apply like in, in the agency, Eric, that you have on a, on a kind of small team project. It can apply, you know, for the largest companies that need to command and corral, you know, a hundred to a thousand people to get something done. Right. But if you don't have clarity of thought, I'm not sure how you actually operate with any level of actual impact. Right. Because you can have the best ideas and you can have the best ideas in the, in the world, but it's like the old saying, which is like, you know, the old saying is ideas are meaningless. Execution is everything. I, I would kind of tweak that, which is, I think ideas matter a whole heck of a lot, but execution is also everything. Right. And so I think you need clarity of thought and clear minded thinking to get to good ideas, but then also to understand how do you actually do those ideas? Clarity of thought to me means not being, you know, too high or too low, right? In you know, in in business, I think anybody that runs a business, whether it's you know their own kind of individual consulting shop or a larger organization, there are times in our business that I think you know the whole business is breaking, and there's times that I think, man, there's nothing that's going to stop us to get to 500 million in revenue. Sometimes in the same day, right? That's it's very very natural when you're operating a business, and so. I think you just have to honing in on clarity of thought and and there's so many components to that. It's, you know, part of that is experience, right? In your space or your sector. Part of that is having a good kind of R&D process, which is talking to different people, corralling data points, getting their thoughts, et cetera. And then, you know, coalescing that and synthesizing it and applying it in a way that, that makes sense for your environment. Part of that is just your emotional steadiness, right? Not getting too high, not getting too low. But at the end of the day, I think anybody that's that's kind of worth their while or has done something interesting, the personalities can be different, the emotional, you know, the EQ can be different, et cetera. But they typically have really good clarity of thought. So that's that's what I was trying to communicate in, in that one. Got it. Yeah. And so around clarity of thought, obviously learning's a big piece that goes into that. So I'm just curious for you, like what actually goes into your learning stack? Like and you can answer this question anyway. I mean, basically I'm just asking about your learning habits. Yeah. Yeah, I read a lot and I read a lot of different things. I read about, you know, I read about politics. I'm, I'm a big sports fan. I read about business, of course, but I, I I just read a lot, right? And I like I consume a lot of content and and I try to consume more long form content because I think more and more the competitive advantage in, in the world is actually critical thought. It's it's getting past kind of the headlines and the and the short tweets and the and the lack of nuance. And I try to read things that are timeless, right? From a principles perspective, because human nature is the same, right? I mean, the facts change, but human nature is the same. And so I think when you, when you read a lot or you consume a lot of, you know, high quality content, you're just able to connect the dots, right? And, and kind of connecting the dots doesn't come from sitting in an empty room and just reading, then I think you're, you're too academic, but it's, sitting and reading a lot and kind of being with your own thoughts, but then, you know, putting yourself in the game to actually apply some of those principles and concepts to most importantly, learn about yourself, right? Because it's, it's not just the knowledge that you consume, but it's the actual application of that knowledge that turns into wisdom, right? And so I think you can consume all the information in the world, but if you don't actually know how you're going to act upon that information, and, and the only way you do that candidly is getting in the game, right? I mean, it's I I used to think that, you know, when when folks talked about, you know, business, et cetera, you know, business was so easy to analyze from a from a spreadsheets and et cetera perspective. But business is a collection of people and emotions 
least of which, you know, or rather I should say most of which are your own emotions if you're the leader, right? And so understanding how you react in different types of environments and such is is super, super important. So yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it's consuming a lot of good content, but then actually being in the game to see how do you translate, you know, that that content and that knowledge, you know, into actual application. Yeah, it's perspective at the end of the day. And you just reminded me, I was like, I was like, damn, what's that one site that has all the long reads? It's longreads.com. And I'm sure you're familiar with it. So great, great. Yeah, no, I'm not actually, but I'll, I'll check it out. It oh, there you go. Cool. Yeah, no, it's it's got all the it's like collection of the latest like long form reads. But God, so for I had a good question, but now now it's actually brought me to the next one. So you talking about 2022 to 2030 being a renaissance decade and how you're investing three million in 2022. So A, what do you mean by renaissance decade? And then you know, B, if you want to expand on that, that tweet. Yeah. Well, 2022 has gotten off to, I'd say, less than a renaissance decade type start this morning too. <laughs> in, in all seriousness. Yeah. You know, the, the pandemic is obviously ending, but it's still serious. And then of course, you know, geopolitical tensions with Ukraine and Russia. And so, you know, there's very real things going on in the world. So my, my heart goes out, you know, to kind of all the folks that are affected. When, when I wrote that thread, and I still believe it kind of from a more macro perspective, basically what I was trying to communicate was, you know, we were coming off, you know, a hopefully call it once in a lifetime type moment with the pandemic. And, and, and there was a really good tweet storm uh, that somebody wrote, you know, this past week, which was basically, you know, you can segment businesses into different types of ways. There were some businesses that got, you know, one sort of demand shock. There were some that, you know, COVID truly pulled forward demand, right? And, the, and you know, this was the trend and the trajectory these businesses were going on anyways. And then there were some that were completely, you know, kind of head fakes, right? And and I think the interesting thing, you know, when I when I said Renaissance decade, what I really meant by that was, if you think of the Renaissance period, it was just a period of like Cambrian explosion in creativity and innovation and and just just newness, right? And I think the way that you get that in the modern world, because it's so difficult to break free from inertia, is when you have just a really sharp object that kind of changes the contours of the world. And we had that with COVID, right? And so with, with kind of that change that's come into play, I think there's all sorts of impacts and we're, we're obviously seeing them in things like education and healthcare and cybersecurity and enterprise cloud and crypto, you know, and, and so on and so forth. Right. And so I think we're going to see a dramatic amount of change, you know, over the next 10 years, which makes it really, really interesting and exciting from an investment perspective. I think the other thing that happens when you have these types of, you know, when you have these types of events is you also have to separate a little bit what was already happening, you know, in the world and what was the trajectory the world was going on and then what's happening because of this event, right? But I think if you look forth at what was already happening in the world, you know, technology is becoming more and more of a mainstay of our conversations. It used to be a cottage industry, it used to be a niche industry. Venture capital used to be a cottage and niche industry, right? It's becoming more and more institutionalized. What's happening in venture capital right now is actually what happened in private equity and investment banking, you know, 15, 20 years ago, right? And with that comes a lot of grift and there will be a lot of waste and excess and so on and so forth. But when you marshal that number of smart people focus in the same direction, you marshal that amount of capital, right? Interesting things happen, right? And if you look at the market cap, you know, of the S&P 500 and you compare that with, you know, all the unicorns in the world, all of crypto, you know, I'm sure the stat is a little bit different now because crypto and and kind of some of these late stage companies are definitely overvalued. But there was a stat I was reading kind of a month or two ago that I think I'd put out on Twitter, which was 
If you add up the market cap of all of crypto and all of the world's unicorns, it was less than Microsoft and Apple, right? And to me, that's like the most bullish stat possible, right? Like if you're telling me that like all of the world's, you know, billion dollar companies on paper, right? At this current moment in time, plus all of cryptocurrency is smaller than the two largest tech companies in the world in, in kind of 2022 terms. I'm not sure how you can't be bullish you know, on how some of these companies look like in 2030, 2040, 2050 and beyond. That's not to say by any stretch, that's actually not to, and I think it's important to make this distinction. That's not to say that there's any specific insight there on valuation, right? There's not to say there's any specific insight there on, you know, what's going to happen in the world geopolitically or with inflation or kind of all these other kind of different, different things. But I think it, the comment that it's basically making is, you know, there are always diamonds in the rough. And right now, I think we've gotten kind of the rough start to the decade, but there's lots and lots of diamonds. And so I think if you're investing, I think if you're thoughtful and you're, again, you're in the game, right, which I keep coming back to, because I think it's such an important concept of not being on the sidelines, but being in the game. I think it's hard not to be excited about like finding really interesting businesses and opportunities over the next decade. Oh, that's a good follow-up question. So what are you, what are kind of the, the, the opportunities that you're investing into right now? What are you most excited about personally? Yeah. I mean, I have to say, the more I, I read about and learn about crypto, the more I get kind of pulled down this rabbit hole. I think we've seen kind of, you know, a lot of geopolitical events, you know, in whether it's been in Canada, in the US, you know, et cetera, obviously what's happening on with Russia and Ukraine, where it really starts to make sense, you know, what's the value of some of these cryptocurrency projects. I think there's a lot of stuff like a lot of NFTs, et cetera, that are going to go to zero. There's no utility. There's a lot of pump and dump. Right. There's a lot of wash trading. So, you know, regulation needs to catch up. Sophistication needs to catch up. A lot of this is kind of buyer beware. But the underlying premise of what, you know, crypto solves for, which is really trust through decentralization as opposed to through centralized institutions, is just really, really powerful. I mean, it's a powerful technical breakthrough, but it's a really a power, it's more than that. It's a powerful philosophical breakthrough. Right. And so I'm really interested in learning. I'm not an expert by any stretch and I'm, I'm learning kind of every single day, but I'm, I'm just really interested. In, in a lot of the different types of crypto projects that are coming out. And then separately, I mean, you know, kind of back to that stat that I put out, like I'm, I'm super excited by vertical software, right? Like software that's going into kind of small and medium-sized business spaces where they're, you know, there's just not a good solution. A lot of really good tech that we use in kind of startups and Silicon Valley, et cetera, is good horizontal software. But I've been more so looking for like vertical software, like software that just applies to a given industry and it meets the use cases of a given industry, right? And it's basic, basic blocking and tackling, whether it's like your CRM, you know, email automation, whatever it is. But, you know, a tool like HubSpot is just not going to make sense, right? Because for an architecture firm, there's all sorts of, you know, specific things or a professional services firm, there's all sorts of specific things. So I've seen a bunch of vertical software I'm really interested in. And then I'm, I'm Indian by descent, but I'm just super bullish on India and what's going on in India. I've invested in a ton of Indian companies, you know, fortunately, many of them have done really well and not, you know, just on paper, but these businesses are actually like very, very much so growing. And I think India has just seen this very large, you know, kind of inflection point and transformation over the last five years. We can get in some of the details of that if that's interesting for folks. It's probably a separate conversation, but there's just a whole bunch of interesting activity that really has a shot of being sustained activity. Right. And so, so yeah, I, I, I mean, I'm excited by a lot of themes. I think actually what I try to do as an angel is, not have too many top-down theses and actually have more of a bottoms-up 
kind of view on the world, right? It's it's really not my job to come up with the next 100 interesting ideas, but it's to find the founders that are working on those next 100 interesting ideas. But I'm super bullish across like a lot of different a lot of different areas right now. Amazing. Yeah, that's, that's definitely a separate conversation we need to have. Just three more questions from my side. I, maybe we'll have one podcast that's just dedicated to, to investing. And I do have a final question around investing too. Oh, and my last question just came up out of nowhere. So, you know, one of my friends, he's, he's an angel. He also, you know, right now he's like investing into like commodities, you know, we're going into this, who knows what's going to happen long-term with inflation. So I was just asking him, I was like, you know, obviously we know Warren Buffett, you know, reads around five, six hours a day or so. I was like, so how many hours are you reading per day right now? He's like four, about around four or five or so. So, you know, you, you're operating right now. You've got other stuff that you're cooking up. How many hours are, do you think you're averaging per day? Oh man. Well, I'm certainly not in the league of somebody like Warren Buffett where I can, I can spend that much time reading or I'm smart enough to put the dots together. <laughs> I, I try to spend like, you know, an hour a day on average, and that's not an hour every single day. I don't think that's realistic, but it's, you know, some days it's two hours, you know, three hours, some days it's half an hour, but I try to average like an hour or so a day. Naval had a really good tweet on this. I think it was a couple of years ago, which was basically like, again, I'm going to butcher this. Uh, maybe we can find it, but it was something to the tune of like, if you read like 10 minutes a day or something, you were already in the, like the top 1% of the world. Right. And it, it surprised that. me because it was just like the barrier is so, so low. Yep. And I think that just becomes like all the more important in a world in which we're so affected and trained by short-term information, right? Short-term yep. information and content is coming at you from every single direction. And so yep. I think having the ability to a curate kind of a good information diet, I pulled up long reads actually while you were, um, while, while you pointed it out and yeah. it looks really interesting. I'm going to dig into it more, but I think finding like really good content like this and just spending the consistent time to read is, is so important, right? It it's compounds. So, yeah. 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 It compounds. Yeah. It, it yeah. totally compounds. Got it. All right. And so two final questions from my side, favorite business book. Favorite business book. I really like Clay Christensen. And so Innovator's Dilemma was kind of my, my favorite business book for a long time. But I think a more important book that he wrote you know, maybe not in terms of contribution to the world of business, but, you know, just to kind of human psychology is how to measure your life. And, and I think that book is, if you, if folks haven't read it, I highly recommend reading it. Christensen takes, you know, kind of a, a very interesting perspective of just, you know, being around incredibly sophisticated and well-accomplished people on paper and in profession by any stretch of life, but also many of those people being terribly miserable and unhappy. And so his whole kind of premise of the book is, you know, what are the different ways, what are the different tools, you know, frameworks? I I, I cringe a little bit in saying frameworks because I think there's too much conversation around frameworks and not enough yeah. around action and, and actually applying things. But but it has some good frameworks. But more importantly, it has really good tools, I think, to really understand your own personal psychology and ultimately how are you going to measure your life, right? The title of the book, right? And so that's that's a great one. I love that one. You know, I was trying to shortcut that one because like I, I think the general premise around it is, is just how much impact you're going to have around people around you. But like the way you just explain it makes me I'm going to add to cart after this. So you know yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, well I think it's cool because it's like, I don't know, Eric, like some people don't really like don't really care about how much impact they have around others and and that's okay. Right. Like I, I think it's similar to when you see a lot of the advice that's like, you know, how obsessed we are around like founder culture. So like, you know, a lot of the great companies got built because there were number twos and number sevens and number 57s and 100s, et cetera, that were super awesome and, you know, did what they needed to do as number 57 as at the company. And, you know, those people 
might not have actually really had a great life for you know, forget the success part, but just from an enjoyment part, fulfillment part, whatever quality of life part, if they were number ones, right? And and so, but we kind of have this culture or thesis of like, you got to be number one, right? Like the founder gets the glory, right? And so I think it's a really important book to read earlier or sooner rather than later in your life, because I think answering that question earlier rather than later, it just gets you on the right track, right? And it gets you, there's another book that I really like that I read recently, it's called Wanting by Luke Burgess. It's all about mimetic desires. Mm. And the concept of mimetic desires is basically a lot of the things that we we want in the world actually have nothing to do with what we intrinsically want. We want it because we see somebody else has it, right? Mm. So, you know, what, you know, to use your example earlier, if I see a friend on CNBC, maybe I want to be on CNBC. Well, it's not really that I want to be on CNBC, but I kind of want that because I've seen somebody that I know that's on CNBC. Right. right. Or somebody that's written a book or somebody that's raised a lot of money or somebody that's done X, Y, and Z or whatever it might be. Right. And so the the book is really good because unlike most kind of books, you know, most books would kind of say, well, here's the secret sauce. Here's the answer around how you don't have any mimetic desires. Mm. That's actually not the premise of the book at all. The premise of the book is that it's supernatural. It's superhuman. Can't get rid of mimetic desires. But here are the ways to actually be self-aware that you're having a mimetic desire, right? So I think wanting and how to measure your life are are just are great. I can't recommend them enough. In fact, I, I periodically reread them to re-remind myself, you know, of those concepts. Oh, they're pretty evergreen. Okay, cool. What is your favorite? Could be business or personal tool. Yeah, this is totally going to be a shout out to like a product that I've been using for like three months or so. So TBD on whether this answer holds in a year. But I just got an aura ring recently, mm. and I. I love it. And I, I used to kind of be of the belief that like, if you're not getting good sleep, like, or if you feel shitty in the morning, then you're not getting good sleep. Like, why do you need a ring or why do you need something to actually tell you that? Yeah. And I, I was thinking again, kind of back to our earlier point on clarity of thought, I was thinking kind of all or nothing thinking, but aura has just been so cool to see, like, you know, if I eat at a certain point in time, what does that do for my energy? How do I feel the next day? And, and I, I mean, less so as like, productivity hack and how am I my most energetic, et cetera. But I just mean like, how do you feel better and how are you healthy? Right. And so the aura ring has been amazing. There's a couple other, you know, tools I've gotten like really into like, just like fitness and like metabolic age and stuff like lately. And again, less from a place of like, I want to work out and be like super jacked, but more from a place of like, I just want to be really healthy and know like what's in my body. And so the the latest probably flavor of the month is the is the aura ring. Got it. I love that. I, I combine my aura with my my eight sleep and it's like a nice combination because you 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 yeah. have double analytics. Um, yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's great. Cool, man. So Romine, this has been great. What's the best way for for people to find you online? Yeah, you can just follow me on thanks, Eric. This has been fun. You can just follow me on Twitter. I'm at Romine Chef. It's the first name and last name. And that's typically where I hang out on the internet. All right. Everyone check him out. Ramin, we're going to do another one for sure. If you're down in the future, talk more about yeah. investing stuff. And thanks so much for doing this. Awesome. Thanks, Eric. Appreciate it. You may have completed this level, but many more bosses await. If you're looking to level up in marketing or business, just go to singlegrain.com forward slash leveling dash up to get access to our individual and team training programs. That's singlegrain.com forward slash leveling dash up.